I was thinking about this this morning during the nine, man. And, and if you don't mind, brother, throwing that lyric back up there, the uh, it was my death. I, I want you to, so, so I'm sitting down here at the 9 a.m. gathering and we're singing that song. You know, we, we've sang this song a lot up in here, family, that, that song, Lamb of God, which we love. And, um, but so I'm sitting down here at the 9 a.m. and all I'm thinking to myself is, okay, uh, you know, as the preacher, you're sitting down here in the front row and you're going, okay, uh, we walk up there and uh, I'm trying not to trip on the stairs and then I uh, grab the stand and then I'll uh, get into the 30-minute intro and then uh, we'll handle the text and then um, I hope the microphone doesn't break like it did last week and um, I'm, I'm having all these thoughts and then at some moment I stop and I hear, I hear the folks in the 9 a.m. gathering singing at the top of their lungs and it was this lyric right here and it one, at some moment, man, I, I just pause and I start to drink this in family. I think the danger is this. The danger is that we become so used to these songs, man. We just sing these songs and we forget to drink in what a radical idea this is right here, family. I want you to think of the scandal of this. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're just sort of kicking the tires on this whole thing, I'm really glad you're here because now, right now, you get to listen in to what, you know, the, the, the scandal of this thing called Christianity and faith in Jesus because this right here is the foundation of our faith, beloved. This idea that our God would willingly take on flesh, become a man, live the perfect life on our behalf, die a bloody, horrific death on a cross so that you and I would not have to endure the wrath of God. When's the last time you really drank that in? When's the last time you're like, like you really felt the weight of that, beloved? Like, like, what'd you think about this for a minute? Like, like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which I love, man. It says that, it says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know what that means? You know what that means? That, that means that I'm born into this world, an, a sinner who absolutely deserves hell forever. Ephesians chapter two says, I am by nature object of wrath. This means the only thing I really deserve in this world, the only thing I ever deserve really is hell forever. But God, because he's rich in love, abounding in mercy, made me alive in Christ Jesus. He saved me by grace through faith. He opened up my eyes, stirred within my heart and caused me to see that Jesus is beautiful, wonderful, the answer, a great God and savior. I trusted in Christ. And now because I've trusted in, in King Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, get this man, I was transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of the son that God loves, which means before, when I was an object of God's wrath, like God looked at me and he just saw a guy that deserved the wrath of God. And now being a child of the king whose faith is in Jesus, man, God looks at me and you know who he sees, family? He sees his boy. That's my boy. That's my child. That's what the blood of Jesus accomplished for us. I mean, I'm reading that and I'm going, man, I pray that we as a people, I pray that we as a church body would never, ever move past the gospel. Because I'm telling you, family, here's the reality. Some of you limped in today. I know life's hard, life's difficult. I mean, that's pretty much, you know, our, our weeks, right? It's we, we have thorns in our flesh and we have obstacles and we live in a world where there's thorns and thistles and things don't typically go our way. And, and we live in a world that's scarred with sin. But the reality is this, beloved, I want, you to, I want you to hear me right now. If you're a follower and a worshiper of Jesus and this truth right here can't make you you smile even just a little bit, something's wrong. Because I know that life isn't always perfect, but for the believer, here's the good news. No matter how difficult this world may get for you, this world is the closest to hell you're ever gonna get, family. All because of Jesus. 
And so before we even get into the text, man, before we even get into James chapter five and we continue our series through James, which just so you know, man, our text is really a sharp left turn from what we're talking about right now. But before we even get into that, I wanna have this moment where we can pause and we can drink in the truth, the good news of the gospel. It says, you are not good enough for God and I am not good enough for God, but God willingly came and laid down his life. And here's the scandalous thing about Christianity. There's a whole lot of people in this world who were worshiping a God, worshiping a deity, worshiping a, a little G God, and they actually believe that their little G God has commanded them to go. You go and you lay down your life for me, and you go over there and you lay down your life for me, that, that their God wants them to lay down their lives for him. But family, the scandal of Christianity is that we serve a God who laid down his life for us. So we worship him and we sing to him and we're grateful for him. And so I want to pray right now and I just want to pause, man, even before this message, to drink in the good news of the gospel, this good news that we sang, the radical, the radical truth of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would lay down his life for us. Lord, we don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. None of us in this room deserves it. We're all by nature objects of wrath. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and every single day we struggle and every single day we fall and every single day we sin and the reality is, Lord, um, that the only thing any of us deserves is hell forever but you because of love and you because of mercy and you because of grace and you because of you reached down and gave everything so that we might be new creations. Lord, I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you that I can go to bed tonight knowing that my fate is certain, that it is secure, Lord, that I will be in eternity with you forever. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your good news. And I pray all of these things to the matchless name of King Jesus. Amen. All right, amen, y'all. Um, James 5 is where we're at. And we're gonna continue our series of the book of James. If you're new with us here, we've been in a series to the book of James now for, I don't even know, man, four, five months, maybe. You lose count at some point, right? But we only have today and then next Sunday, and then we're finished up with James, right? We're done. And so we, we, we've kind of, the Lord's been faithful to us along this journey. And then at the end of today, at the end of this gathering, you're, you're gonna hear a little bit more about where the Lord is leading us uh, after James. And so I'm excited about that. But until then, James 5, we'll pick it up in verse one, where we left off last week, family. And uh, I wanna start with this. So how many of you, your, your kids are back in the rhythm of school? Anybody, let me see you. Kids are back in the rhythm of school, so mine are too. And, and it's crazy because like everybody's, everybody's schedule adjusts, right? Everybody's got to figure it out. Everybody's got to get up a little bit earlier and change a routine. And so, uh, so one morning this past week, we were, uh, we were downstairs. The whole family was up, right? It was way early. I mean, it's still dark outside. And uh, our daughters, our 11-year-old and our six-year-old, they're sitting at the kitchen table and kind of, you know, eat, eating their cereal. And, and I'm sitting there sipping my coffee and, and my awesome wife wife's over here making lunches for the day for the kids. And, and we're sitting there kind of in the kitchen, right, having family time beginning of the morning. And then all of a sudden, man, our, our oldest daughter, Annabelle, our 11-year-old, uh, she looks up at me at the kitchen table, and just kind of out of the blue, like this conversation came from out of nowhere. She looks up at me, and she goes, um, she goes, Daddy, I've been thinking. I said, what's going on, baby? She said, well, I've been thinking. She said, I have a whole lot of money saved up for my birthday, and I know what I want to buy. I was like, really, baby, what's that? She goes, I want to buy an aqua-colored Yeti cup. 
And she said it with passion. She said it with, it was definitive, right? And I'm like, wow, baby, that's very specific. All right, you've really put some thought into this. You want to buy an aqua-colored Yeti cup. All right, I'll make note of that. And, and uh, that's great. That's awesome, right? And so, so she says that. And then our six-year-old sitting over here, right? And she's heard this whole exchange. She's watched this whole thing go down. And so our six-year-old Madeline, hearing this whole thing happen, she looks at me and she goes, uh, she goes, Daddy, I've been thinking too. I said, what have you been thinking about? She goes, well, I have a lot of money saved up too, and I know what I want to do with it. I said, baby, what do you want to do with your money? She says, I want to send all of my money to the people in Uganda. So now, so now we have a little bit of an issue at our kitchen table. But because, because like, you know, over here, we've got, we've got my, my oldest daughter, the capitalist, right? And then over here, we've got my youngest daughter who works for the Peace Corps, right? And so uh, we're, we're, we're having a conversation now, and, I, and I'm looking at my oldest daughter, and I can see that she now is, she's dealing with attention. Like, I can see internally, like, on her face, she's thinking, and she's really, like, she's thinking about this exchange that just happened, and you can see, like, there's this inner turmoil going on, and she's trying to decide what should I do, and how should I respond to this, and, you know, because over here, you have my oldest daughter who wants to buy a, an aqua-colored Yeti cup to keep her orange juice cool and to take to the swimming pool with her, and then over here, you've got my youngest daughter who wants to change the entire economic system of a developing nation. And so they want to do two very different things with the resources they have. And so now my oldest daughter's going, what do I do here? What do I do? And then she, and then, and then my oldest daughter says, daddy, daddy, wait, daddy, I changed my mind. I said, okay, baby, what, what'd you change your mind to? She goes, I, I want to send my money to Uganda too. If I can't find an aqua yeti cup, Right. <laughs> That's what she said. Now, now, here's the deal, family. Here's the deal. Here's why I tell you that story. So at that moment, watch this. Here's what's so fascinating to me. My daughter's 11, man. She, she's like just, you know, a week into sixth grade for crying out loud, right? And here's what was so crazy to me. Like at that moment, my 11-year-old daughter was dealing with this tension that we all know so well, Right? I mean, so, so watch this, my 11-year-old daughter at this moment is dealing with this tension that we're all familiar with, those of us who are older, those of us who have some years, we're all familiar with this tension. It's a tension that every single one of us deals with pretty much daily, weekly, monthly, we deal with all the time, and it's this tension right here. Here it is, it's this tension right here. I have a certain amount of resources that are at my disposal, It's just true. I got a certain amount of resources that are at my disposal and I get to decide what to do with these resources, man. I mean, that's how this gig works, right? Like I, I have the deciding, I, I'm the deciding factor here. Like I get to make the determination as to what to do with the resources that are at my disposal. And, and when you boil it all down, the reality is there's really only two options. I got resources, certain amount at my disposal and I got two options set before me. And option one is this, right? Option one is I can choose to take these resources that are at my disposal and I can choose to be really generous, right? I can choose to do that, man. I can take these resources and I can decide, man, I'm gonna be generous. I'm gonna be a huge blessing to someone else with these resources that I have. That's option one. And then there's option two. And option two is this, family. I can take these resources, this certain amount of resources that are at my disposal and I can decide to use them on me. It's really the two choices I have, the, the two options I have with these resources that I have. And if I'm being honest, man, if I'm being honest, I'm just going to be real with you. Most days, option two sounds better to me, y'all. 
Option one, I can be generous and, and, and do, do something to be a huge blessing. Option two, I can choose to just take them and use them on me. And most times, I'm telling you, most days, family, option two sounds a lot better, which, which just so you know is why, quite frankly, on most days, man, the vast majority of the people in our culture and even the vast majority of people who profess to follow Christ choose option two. That's just the reality, man. And just so you know, family, this is exactly, watch this, this is exactly what James is about to talk about here in James chapter five. This is exactly the issue that James is about to unpack for us and wrestle with here in James chapter five, which means, family, listen, which means, welcome to church. We about to talk about money, y'all. <laughs> Woo! You see why I'm so happy? You see why I came in here with a skip in my step? I'm just thinking all week, I can't wait to talk about money this Sunday because everybody's gonna love it. You're thinking, oh, man, I can't, how, how did I get this lucky to show up at church on the day we talk about money? I mean, ice cream sandwiches, lollipops, and churches that talk about money. These are a few of my favorite things. Amen? Right? Come on. Right? Not so much. I know. I know. Y'all listen. I'm just, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right off, man. Like, like there's nothing about me that gets personal excitement from preaching right now. Like, I'm just telling you, they, it's, it's no fun. It's no fun because here's what happens oftentimes, dude. What happens is folks come into the church and as soon as you mention money, everybody gets skeptical immediately because what have we seen, man? We've seen these televangelists who are basically stealing from the poor, stealing from poor people saying, man, sow your seed into my ministry and God will give you more and God will give you abundance and God will give you prosperity and they're stealing from the widow to drive around and fly around in a $40 million jet. And because of that, we get real skeptical about this truth. But, but family, can I just say this? Listen, can I just say this? Here's the, here's the reality. Just because a truth has been abused, that does not mean we should ignore the truth. So we've got to be careful, man. We gotta be careful, so, so, so here we go. And by the way, can I just say this? Because some of you are here for the first time, and this is your very first time dipping into Emmaus, and we love you, and we're so glad you're here, and we hope to shake your hand out in the lobby and give you a gift, and, and we're just thrilled that you're here, and we hope you come back. But can I just say this? In the interest of full disclosure, man, to anybody who's here for the very first time, here's what you need to know, just so, you're clear, just so we're clear right now. We do not cherry-pick sermons around here. We don't cherry pick topics. Like you have to know that about us. That, like we never have, okay? And what I mean by that is this, man. In the seven years that Emmaus Church has existed, man, we have never, ever, ever done a sermon series about money, ever. Now, I'm not bagging on that and I'm not saying if you do that, it's wrong. I'm just, I, I say that, just say this, you gotta understand. All we do up in here is preach through books of the Bible, y'all. Y'all gotta get that. Like, 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 that's all we do. That's what God's called us to do. We just pick, we just pick books of the Bible. So, so we'll pick a book and we'll start in chapter one, verse one, and we'll just go. And we'll get to the last chapter and we'll finish it up and then we'll start another book. And we'll char, start in chapter one, verse one, and then we'll just keep going until that book is over. That's all we do is preach through books of the Bible. And today, in this specific part of the Bible that we're in this morning, right, God is going to talk unapologetically about your dough. He's gonna talk unapologetically about your money because here's how this works, family. Let's just deal with it up front. Here's how this works. When you're God, which by definition means you have authority over everything, you get to talk about money. So to the skeptic in the house this morning, I'm just saying, 
If you're skeptical, I'm just gonna give you a warning. Uh, hide your wallet, roll your eyes, throw a temper tantrum, do whatever you gotta do. But just so you know, God is about to speak into this issue. So let me show you what I'm talking about, family. By the way, y'all gotta help a preacher out. Why is he, get, you get the fewest amens during a financial sermon, right? I mean, the 9 a.m. was like crickets, right? Um, um, thank you, brother, come on. James chapter five, verse one. And here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna read all six verses and then we're gonna come back and parse it up and do some work, okay? But we need to read all six verses together. Follow the thought here. James is, again, just to set it up, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's a pastor. He's writing to a bunch of people he loves. These are followers of Jesus scattered all throughout a particular region. And he's talking to them about what it means, what it looks like to follow Jesus in a culture that doesn't applaud you when you follow Jesus. That's really the theme of this whole letter. So we have a lot of hard stuff to say. And the hits just kind of keep on coming here. So, so James chapter five, starting at verse one, it says this. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, but let's look at this because here's the situation, family. The, the very first question that we have to ask when we read these really strong words from James right here, and I think we'd all agree these are really strong words. I mean, James, in keeping with who he is, is very abrupt, very black and white, very in your face. But the very first question we gotta ask when we read these really up in your face words is this right here. Who is James talking to when he says all this stuff? I mean, that's an important question. We, we need to know that, right? Because because. If we know who James is talking to up front, if we know who this is supposed to be addressed to, if we know who's supposed to be hearing this, then we know whether or not we're supposed to listen to it, right? We know whether or not it applies to us. So we need to ask that question, man. Like, like who are these words actually for? Who are these words actually intended to, to affect and to reach? And so, and so just so you know, the answer to that question is actually right here. It's found in the first four words of verse one. Look at the very first four words of verse one. We, we, we see immediately who this is to. He says, come now, you rich. Come now, you rich. In other words, in these six specific verses right here, James is clearly speaking to rich people. That's who this is for, family. This is for rich folk. This is, this is for rich people. Now, here's where we get confused and here's where things can get a little muddy and a little cloudy and where we need a little help, family. The logical question we now have to ask in response to this, seeing that James is writing in these six verses to rich folk, the logical question we need to ask is this, what is it that makes a person rich? How do, you, how, how do you qualify a person as being rich? How, how do we put that label on somebody? Like who actually qualifies as being a rich person? Like where's the line, watch this, where's the line between say, you know, like, uh, like average middle class and rich? What, where is that line? Like how can we know definitively whether or not a person is rich? Because it can get confusing in our society, right? It can get, we, we, a lot of times we don't know. 
And here's why. Here's why oftentimes we don't know in our culture, man. I, so I read a story, man, here's the deal. I read a story just this past week about a guy who lives out in Vegas who paid $20,000 for a lock of Elvis Presley's hair. Can you imagine? 20 Gs, man, 20 Gs to buy a little lock of hair that came from the guy who sang Jailhouse Rock. I mean, who's got that kind of money? Like, who can do that with, with money? Like, we look at that and we're going, what? Oh, man, that, that guy's, that guy's rich. That guy's wealthy, right? I mean, that's what we think. I mean, I, I read this other story this week, the Sultan of Brunei. You heard of the Sultan of Brunei? Apparently, he's got some cash. And the Sultan of Brunei, check this out, family. Sultan of Brunei literally spends $2,300 a week on a haircut. 2300 bucks a week on a haircut. And he actually had a special luxury cabin built for his barber that he keeps on site. So the guy comes and stays in the luxury uh, cabin and then, he, and then charges 2300 bucks for a haircut every single week. Now, here's the crazy part about all that. I got on Google Images this week and looked up a picture of the Sultan of Brunei and his hair's ugly. <laughs> True story, look it up, man. Like, like my $12 great clips haircut looks better than his. I'm just saying. 2300 bucks, just dropping that stuff, right? Made me look ugly. Here, 2300 bucks, right? Tr true story, family. Back a few years ago, maybe you heard about this. Do you hear about this? Back a few years ago, Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, got a lot of money. Bill Gates spent over $30 million to purchase the journal of Leonardo da Vinci. Did you hear about this? That actually happened. Brother Man took $30 million and said, I want the journal of the dead guy, right? And he, and he bought Leonardo da Vinci's Journal. Well, here's the question, Amos. Here's the question we got to deal with. We hear stories like that. We read stories like that every day, pretty much. And, 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 and we start to ask ourselves, okay, is that, how we, is that how we define rich? I mean, is that how we as a culture define rich? And oftentimes it is, right? We never consider ourselves to be rich, right? We never consider ourselves to be wealthy. We, we consider the guys and the ladies to be wealthy who have like, you know, the, 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 the mounds of money they ski down and they drop 20 Gs for a lock of hair and they do all this crazy stuff and exorbitant stuff. That's who we consider to be rich. But the question we need to ask, man, seriously, is how do we define rich people? Is that what it means to be rich? Is that what James means here? Or instead, instead, man, does it mean something different altogether that we need to pay attention to? All right, well, here's the thing you need to understand, beloved. When our boy James uses the word rich right here in this passage, you know what it means? It literally means this. It literally means abounding with. That's what it means. It means abounding with. Another way to say it would be this, family. The word rich that James uses here literally means to have plenty. To have plenty, that's what it means, right? And, and with that being said, okay, with that being defined according to the way that James is intending to use it right here in this text, with that being said, family, here's what I would like to propose to every single one of you right now. Based on James' definition of what it means to be a rich, we are all rich. Everybody up in this house right now, is rich. So, so all I'm telling you, man, is if you're in this room right now, congratulations. You should throw a party tonight, go to Publix, get a cake with some buttercream icing because you're rich. You got reason to throw a party. You are rich. 
And see, family, here's the deal. Somewhere along the line, here's what we all desperately need to understand. We need to take a step back and we need to see things rightly because this is the water we swim with, right? All we know is our culture. We were born here. We were raised here. We grow old here. And all we know is here and our problems here and our issues here. But family, we need to step back, get a little bit of a global perspective right now and understand a few things because the truth is this, family. Did you know, listen, did you know most people living on planet Earth right now don't even own a second outfit? Do you know that? Man, we send teams of folks from this church, from this every single year over to Kaihuri, Uganda, Western Uganda, and I'm telling you, you find some team members in here and you have a conversation with them. You know our experience over there? 95% of the people we interact over there with for like eight or 10 days never change their outfit. You know why? They don't have options. They don't have options. But then you have me. You know what I did last night? Last night, I spent 15 minutes pondering deeply what blue jeans I'd wear today. Why? Well, because I have options. Open my closet, man. I got options. Family, did you realize that a huge number of people living on earth right now don't even have a pair of shoes, much less a second pair? Don't have shoes on their feet. How many pairs you got in your closet right now? Beloved, did you know that the average person living in India, which is the largest nation in the world population-wise right now, the average person living in India makes less than $300 per month, which you factor that out to be, you know, about $9 a day. Could, could you live on that? And that's just in India, the largest population in the world, like that nation. Did you also know that more than half of the world's population, that's over 3 billion people right now, over half of the world's population right now, man, lives on less than $2.50 a a day, and half of them, so 1.5 billion, live on less than a dollar per day. I mean, could we be honest that most of us spend two times, three times, four times that much money before 7 a.m. on a mochaccino? Do you realize 50% of planet Earth doesn't have running water that comes into their home? Did you know that means if you go home today and you're able to do this and water comes out of some pipe, you're in the top half of the people in the world as far as you being blessed and provided for. So again, watch this. Again, the question is, what should our measuring stick be when, we come to, when it comes to defining who's rich? What, what should the litmus test be, so to speak, when it comes to qualifying this is a rich person or that is a rich person? How should we define that? Well, well who are we kidding, family? We're rich. Like most of the world, if they were asked who's rich, you know what they would say? The average American. We're rich. We're rich, and maybe you hear that right now, and you want to press back, man, and you're thinking, nah, preacher, you don't know me. I'm not rich. I'm not rich. I'm having a muffler problem right now that I can't afford to get fixed. I'm having a plumbing issue in my house right now I can't afford to get resolved. I ain't been able to buy a new pair of shoes in like two months. I'm not rich. Look, here's the deal, family. Listen, I'm not saying that money is a non-issue for you. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is this. Odds are, ain't nobody in this room right now sweating about where their next meal is going to come from. Odds are most of us aren't thinking right now, I wonder if I'll eat like at lunch. I wonder if I'll eat like, like at dinner. Odds are that's not an issue for any of us. And by the way, if it is, come tell a pastor after this is over, it'll be solved like that. We 
are rich. Beloved, listen, compared to the rest of the world, you are rich and I am rich. Now, understanding that, pay very close attention (laughs) to what James has to say right here to all of us rich folk, okay? Watch what he says, verse one. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. <laughs> and I, I read this this past week, man, and I just had to laugh. And here's why I had to laugh. Like, we, we said this at the beginning of this series, man. James is like, he's like that really blunt, in-your-face friend that you like, but you don't like. You know what I'm talking about? He's, he's like that friend, you're like, I like you, but I don't want you to be in public and read the rest of my friends. You know what I'm saying? Like that awkward guy, like he says stuff that's like, oh, that might be true, but whoa, you know? And I feel like, like every paragraph, James is, I mean, we're reading this, man. If you're anything like me, you're reading James's language right here. And you're thinking, bro, bro, hold up. James, why you got to be so negative, man? Why you always got to rain on the parade, man? You always got to be, what? I mean, every time we walk in, it's like you've got something to, you know, douse us with. I mean, weep and howl. Let's think about it. Weep and howl because of the miseries that are coming upon me, bro. What kind of language is that? You're so dramatic. You're so, you're so, thanks so much for the uplifting pep talk, bro. Right? What's your deal, man? Every party has a pooper. That's why we invited James, right? Like, why has he always got to be so negative, dramatic, bleh, weep, and how? Miseries are coming upon you. Like, bro, you're a bummer, man. You're a killjoy. What's your deal? Family, listen. Here's what you've got to understand. Here's what you've got to understand is this. The, James ain't trying to, he ain't trying to bum you out. James ain't trying to, he's not trying to make you think that following Jesus is just some depressing, you know, thing, like, like, like depressing experience. That's not what's happening. Family, listen, the point that James is making right here is this. Please don't miss this. The point that James is making right here with this strong language is this right here. These people that James is writing to have been entrusted by God with a whole lot of resources compared to everyone else, and yet what they are doing with the resources that they have is evil. That's the point. And James's point is, man, these people have been entrusted by their heavenly father. Remember, y'all, he's writing to Christians. They've been entrusted by their heavenly father with a particular amount of resources and what these rich people are doing with the resources is evil. So the logical question we now have to ask, need to ask, would be appropriate for us to ask is this. As a bunch of rich people ourselves, As a bunch of rich people ourselves, we should want to know this. What are these rich people here in James chapter 5 doing with their money that's so wrong? What are these people doing with their money that's that's not only evil, but apparently requires a rebuke from the Holy Spirit? What are they doing? Why why this rebuke from the Holy Spirit? Well, we begin to find out in verse 2. Watch this, family. Look at what James has to say. Here's what they're doing wrong. Uh, Verse two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last day. So follow this closely, beloved. Get this, the very first thing that our boy James calls these rich people out for is this. We're gonna put it up on the screen for you so you see it. The very first thing he's calling them out for right here in this text is this, family. Number one, number one, hoarding. 
Hoarding. They're hoarding their possessions. They're hoarding their material things. They're hoarding their, their money. They're, they're hoarding. They were hoarding possessions. And just to be clear, because I mean, some of you already know what I'm talking about when I say, you know, hoarding, because you've seen the A&E show and it's disgusting and you know what I'm talking about immediately. And some of you are married to a hoarder and you're praying for that person, right? But here's the reality, family. Just to be clear, let's use the official definition from the dictionary to define this. It's important. What does it mean to hoard? What does it mean to be a hoarder, to to, to be in the process of hoarding? Well, the official definition from the dictionary for the word hoarding is this. Watch this. The accumulation of money, food, or possessions in a hidden or carefully guarded place for preservation and or future use. In other words, family, watch this. In other words, to put it very simply, these people here in James chapter five were collecting a bunch of material items that they didn't need and that they weren't planning on using while at the same time, they were completely ignoring the needs of the people around them. That's what's going on. And this is why James right here in this verse says to these guys, he says, man, listen, listen, you've got all this stuff around you. It's just sitting there. You got all this stuff you're not using. Arguably yet, you don't even have an intention to use. It's just sitting there and it's, it's rusting and it's falling apart. Meanwhile, your brother's in need. You got all these clothes hanging up and you can't even, wait. You can't even go through them all. There's just so many. They're being eaten by moths. You have so many clothes. And meanwhile, your, your sister over here is, is in need. Get your gold and your silver and all your stuff and all your collections and all your trophies and all your, all your stuff just sitting there while your brother or sister is in need. And I'm just gonna be real with you, family. I'm just gonna be honest with you. As a 21st century American, <laughs> I read this this past week. Just even getting ready for the sermon, y'all, I read this this past week and I, I, mean, I started thinking to myself, uh-oh. Hold up, man. Does this mean what I think it means? Because if this means what I think it might mean, I think it might mean I'm in trouble. And here's why I say that. I'll try to illustrate it for you. I got a few items over here to show them to you. Okay, here's why, here's why I say I think I might be in trouble. Got a few items. First of all, we have a uh, rock band guitar. Yeah, come on. If the band's lucky, I might join in after it's over. It'd be awesome. Um, you're welcome, Jeremy. We got, uh, oh, how about this? I have, a, I have a how-to manual for kayaking. In case you're interested in learning how to operate a kayak, this book could come in handy, right? How-to manual for kayaking. Oh, and then, uh, last but certainly not least, I have, any, any fans of the show Lost in here? Anybody fans of the show Lost? Can I hear you? Come on. Loud and proud, baby. Um, I, I have a um, Dharma Initiative jumpsuit for all of you Lost fans, right? Seriously, with the logo, official Dharma jumpsuit. Now, here's my question for you. Audience participation. Here's my question for you. What, what does... What does uh, an old garage band guitar and a manual about how to operate a kayak appropriately and a Dharma jumpsuit, what do all three of those things have in common? Anybody? Anybody? Huh? What? Shout it out loud and proud. Come on. 
I'll just tell you. I'll just tell you. Here's what they all have in common. All three of these things are things that I found in my basement yesterday. All three of them. And by the way, they were in a pile of other stuff. I'm not even going to tell you what was in the pile because that was just embarrassing, right? These are just a few things that I could bring in and show you right now just real quickly. What all these have in common is that I found them all in my basement just sitting there. Now, let me be clear, family. I'm never going to use this stuff. I'm not like holding on to this stuff for a purpose. I'll be honest with you. Like, here's the deal. I don't even know why I have this. A manual on kayaking? Family, I don't even own a kayak, right? Like, why in the world do I own a manual for how to operate? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not holding it on. I'm doing it for a purpose, right? Like, like, like why, why do I have a Dharma jumpsuit? I mean, really? Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I love the show Lost just as much as anybody else, but really, why am I holding on to this? Do I actually think one day I'm going to wake up and think to myself, wow, I'd like to be a total nerd with no friends and put this thing on and walk out of my house into my neighborhood and ask somebody where the nearest hatch is? Like, why? Do I have that? Why? I don't know. It's just sitting there, man. Like it's, it's accumulated in my basement with a lot of other things and it's all in a pile, man. It's just, it's just there. Now here's what's so crazy about this, family. Here's what's so crazy about this. What I could do, an option that I do have since these are resources that I have that have been entrusted to me for whatever reason, what I could do is I could take these things and I could sell these things to like whoever, you know, the highest bidder and I could take everything that was made with the funds that I get from things like this and I could send all of that money that I make to my friend Kenneth over in Kaihuri, Uganda, who's trying to run a children's home orphanage and feed and house over 150 children during one of the worst droughts in Uganda's history. But instead, it just sits there. You know what, family? Just like James said, it is evidence against me. It's evidence against me. What's it evidence of? Here's what it's evidence of. It is evidence that apparently I have closed my eyes to the needs of my brother. One of the most fascinating stories to me in the entire Bible is actually, in my, in my opinion, um, is, is found in the book of Exodus. I can't wait till we preach it through Exodus up in here, man. Like, it's gonna take 12 years, but it's gonna be awesome, man. Like, can I, call, I cannot wait for it one day, man. I don't know what the Holy Spirit says. Um, but one of, the, one of my favorite stories is in Exodus 16, and, and many of you are familiar with it. It's that, it's that moment in history where the children of Israel, right, have been led out miraculously uh, out, of, out of Egypt, man, out of slavery. And you had Moses with the whole let my people go moment, and God uses this brother to, to, to lead the people out. And so now in Exodus 16, they're wandering to the wilderness, right? They're they're walking around in the desert and, and they got no food, man. They're starving. There ain't no Five Guys, ain't no McDonald's, ain't no Quick Trip. They just, they, don't, they got nothing. And, and they're actually saying, man, we wish we could have just died there or stayed there in Egypt because we're gonna die out here. They got no food. They're, they're starving. They don't know what to do. And then there comes this amazing moment where God, you know what God does? God starts to cause these random flakes of bread to fall out of the sky. It's amazing. Like he, he's, causing, he's causing bread to rain down, these random flakes of bread. Matter of fact, the people of Israel, they see these random flakes of bread falling from the sky and they say, what is that? Which, which just, you know, is exactly what they call it. That's what they call it. The word manna in Hebrew literally means, what is that? That's what it means. 
And you know what's fascinating to me? Here's what's fascinating to me. God, you, you read Exodus 16, and what happens is this. God warns these people, man. He straight up warns these people. You know what the Lord says to these people? He says, listen, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna provide this manna for you every day. Every morning, you're gonna come out of your tent and there's gonna be fresh manna there. I'm gonna provide it every single day for you. He says, but listen, when you go to collect that stuff, don't take more than you need. Do not collect more than you need. Just get what you need for that day and then take it back and eat it. And then the next day, get what you need for that day and then take it back and eat it. And the next day, and then the day before the Sabbath, collect enough for two days so you don't do any work on the Sabbath and you actually keep the Sabbath holy and take a rest. But guess what? Every single day, here, God says, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna provide your daily bread every single day. But you gotta trust me, your daily bread every day. Don't take more than you need, just trust me. And what do the people do? Y'all remember? Y'all remember what they do? They, they go out to collect this stuff, and sure enough, man, what would we do? What would we do? They, they're taking bags out there and filling up Kroger sacks and walking, you know, they're, they're bringing, they hoard it. They completely ignore what the Lord says, and they take more than they need, and then they drag this stuff back to their tents, and they hide it away, they hoard it away, they put it in corners, and, and then what the, what the scripture says is this. It's amazing. The scriptures actually tells us, the Bible says that when they woke up the very next morning, all of that stuff that they didn't need, all that stuff that they hid away and they hoarded, every single bit of it the next morning was rotten. It stinketh. That's what the King James Version says. It stinketh. That's why I love King James. It stinketh. True story. And I was thinking about that. And this might be too far, probably is, but, but you know what, whatever. I, I was thinking about it this week and I was going, who knows? Maybe, maybe this is the reason why most of our basements and attics stinketh. It's just filled up with a bunch of crud that we don't need. Can throw that out there. Now check out verse four, okay? Check out verse four. <clears throat> James calls him out for hoarding. You're, you're hoarding. You're, you don't need this stuff. And then he says this in verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, beloved, according to James, not only are these people guilty of hoarding away a bunch of material possessions that they don't need, but in addition to that, these people are also guilty of this. Number two, they're also guilty of withholding. They're withholding. Think about it. They're withholding. In other words, family, watch it. Look at the text again. James said to these folks, he says, guys, listen, you, you got all these people who do really good work for you, like they earn a wage, and you don't even pay them for the work that they do. You're cheating these people. You're taking advantage of the poor. You're, you're taking advantage of the fact that they don't have as much as you. They're taking advantage of the fact they're a different nationality than you. You're taking advantage of the fact that they can't afford to take you to court to try to get back what they have made. You're taking advantage of them and you're refusing to pay what this person has rightfully earned all because you are in love with money and you already have plenty and you already have enough and you're refusing to pay the guy who worked for you. You know, you know the word we have for that, which is the word that James actually uses here? Fraud. Can I just, say, can I just ask this question? I feel like it's just the Holy Spirit because we didn't even ask it in the nine. Maybe we should have. But can I just ask this question right now? Um, are you withholding from anybody? 
One of the biggest bummers in the world, man, is when you hear about a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus and they're a really crooked businessman. A really crooked client. Are you withholding? And then James goes on and again, the hits just keep on coming. Look look what he says in verse five. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Watch his family. In other words, James just accused these people of one more thing. He accused them, first of all, of, he accuses these, these guys in the, in the opening verses of verse five of hoarding, and then he accuses them of withholding from those who have earned rightly. And now, number three, he accuses these people of one more thing, and the sin he accuses these people of is this. Number three, self-indulging. Watch his family. Tells these people they're guilty of self-indulgence here. Just so you know, let's talk about this for a minute because I feel like this is the one that can become cloudy. Like, like this is sort of a broad general term and it's sort of a junk drawer term. We've got a lot of things that it applies to. Let, let me kind of hopefully paint a clearer picture as to what self-indulgence actually is because it's a big deal for us. And we're all, we're, we're, we're all in danger of this family. Here's what self-indulgence looks like. Self-indulgence is when you live your life consistently, time after time after time, day after day, living with this question right here at the forefront of your mind. What do I want? That's what self-indulgence is. Self-indulgence is when on a daily basis, the question that motivates you and your life's decisions and your interactions and your business dealings and and your family stuff and and everything, the question that, that, that is the engine behind everything you do is, what do I want? What do I want? What do I want to eat? What do I want to drink? What do I want to drive? What do I want to live in? What do I want to wear? What do I want to collect? What do I want to spend my time doing? What do I want to spend my money on? Listen, self-indulgence is all about the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. And you never think to yourself, man, you never think to yourself about the other. You're always living with you at the forefront of your mind. And just so you know, family, King Jesus gives us the perfect picture of what self-indulgence looks like in a story that he tells in the Gospel of Luke. I want to read you this, man, because I honestly, I honestly don't believe there's a clearer picture of what self-indulgence looks like than the, than the picture that Jesus paints for us in Luke chapter 12. Listen to what Jesus says. This is it. This is self-indulgence. He tells us a story about a rich, a rich guy who's experienced a lot of favor, a lot of blessing in his life, what appears to be blessing. And listen to the language this guy uses. Listen, listen to what this guy says, this, this guy in the story Jesus tells. Luke 12, 15 says, and Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. 
And I've always found that to be interesting because there's another part in the Gospels where Jesus actually tells us that calling someone a fool is a bad thing. Apparently, the only exception to that is when you're actually a fool. God said to this brother, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you prepared, whose will they be? So is the one. Get that? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And by the way, this brings up a good question. You know what a guy asked me on the way out of the nine? And I thought it was a really good question, a fair question. He said, brother, you read that definition for hoarding? And immediately I leaned over to my wife and I told her, that is the exact same definition for a 401k. Am I not supposed to have a 401k? Am I not supposed to save? Am I not supposed to have a nest egg? Can I just tell you this, family? Read the book of Proverbs. Saving is wise and having an inheritance for your kid is wise. Like God says, that stuff is wise. It's not a question of whether or not you should save or have a 401k or have a retirement account or have a nest egg. The question is this. Is that the first thing you give to? Is that your first priority? Or rather, is your first priority the kingdom? Because see, self-indulgence always looks like this. What do I want? What do I want to do? But just so you know, family, can I just tell you this? Just so you know, the precise opposite of self-indulgence, you know what it is? The opposite of self-indulgence is this, family. Generosity. Generosity. That's the opposite of self-indulgence. So just so you know, man, here's the thing. Just so you know, self-indulgence always asks this question. Self-indulgence always primarily asks the question, what do I want? That's self-indulgence. What do I want? Every day, what do I want? Generosity is different though, family, because you know the question that motivates generosity. You know the question that's always behind an act of generosity. Generosity always asks this question, not what do I want, but generosity asks this question, what do other people need? That's generosity. So over here you have self-indulgence which says, what do I want? Over here you have generosity which says, what do other people need? Considering the needs of someone else more important than mine, what does my wife need? What do my kids need? What does my church family need? What does my community need? What does my neighborhood need? What does this, this, this city need? What does developing nations across the world, what do they need? That's the question behind generosity, not what do I want. It's all about what, does, what do other people need? And family, I want you to think about that for a minute because I want you to think about that in light of who Jesus is. I want you to think about in light of what Jesus did, of how Jesus walked, of who Jesus interacted with, of the conversations that Jesus had, and of ultimately what Jesus did on that cross. Everything that motivated Jesus was always about what do others need, even to the point when a bunch of sinners who had rebelled against God and didn't deserve mercy, he willingly laid down his life for us on a cross because Jesus knew that what we needed more than anything was a Savior. And so we are arguably never more like Jesus than when we're generous and when we give. And just so you know, beloved, here, can I just say this? And and this is the part some of us have a problem with because we're human, man. We're sinners. We got the flesh thing, right? But here's the reality, family. I'm just gonna tell you the truth. There is literally only one way to practice generosity. 
One way. There's not two ways, not eight ways. There is only one way to practice generosity, and it's this. Give. That's it. There's one way to practice generosity, and here it is. You got to, you got to, let, you got to let go your grip. You got to let it go and give it away. In other words, family, another way we could say it is you got to do the exact opposite of what the culture tells you to do. You got to do the, extra, the exact opposite of how the society tells you to operate and tells you to live and tells you what makes you valuable. You got to choose to repent, change your mind, and do the exact opposite. You have to let it go. You, you have, don't hoard. Don't withhold. Don't indulge yourself and fatten your own heart exclusively while you totally ignore the mission of Jesus, but instead give. There's one way to practice generosity, and it's to give. And specifically, I'll even say this, if you're a worshiper of Jesus who's been saved by faith in Jesus, you should give generously, specifically, towards the advancing mission of Jesus. You should, man. And by the way, can I just say this? Like if you're in here right now and you ain't a Christian, man, you're just checking this deal out and you're, you're looking around and you're taking stock. Can I just tell you this? You shouldn't give a dime today. You shouldn't give a dime. You know what you should do? The main issue for you is this. You need to bow your knee to Jesus. You need to confess Jesus as Lord and recognize who he actually is. The main thing on the line is your soul. You need to embrace the fact that Jesus loves you. He came for you. He died for you. He paid it all for you. He rose again from the grave for you. And you need to trust in a risen Savior today. But can I say this to all the Christians in the house? The only way to practice generosity is to give. And you need to give generously towards the mission of Jesus. And I know, I understand. Again, believe me, I wasn't real pepped up to preach this sermon today, man. I understand. Some of y'all hear me say that, and immediately you start thinking to yourself, well, here we go. Here, I told you, I told you. Talking about money, I told you. Hold on to your wallet. Where them baskets? I know them baskets are coming. Where them baskets, right? But here's the deal, love. Can I say this? I wasn't real fired up about coming in here to preach this today. But at the same time, can I say this? I preach it unapologetically. I preach this message unapologetically. I stand here right now when I ask you, followers of Jesus in the house, to give generously towards the mission of Jesus with no apologies whatsoever, mainly for two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, first reason I ask you to do that unapologetically is because I don't know what else to tell you, say to you, man. Read your Bible. Giving your money towards the advancing mission of Jesus is basically Christianity 101, y'all. I know what I say. Like it's ground floor discipleship. It's, it's the learning to walk in the Christian life is what it is. It's, it's, it's Christianity 101. I'll, I'll even say this, man, that, and I've said this before and I'll say it again because I believe it's absolutely true. If you're a worshiper of Jesus and yet you are reluctant when it comes to giving generously and hilariously towards the advancing mission of the good news about Jesus going to more souls, more people who don't know Christ, if you're like not into that or skeptical about that and yet you're also a worshiper of Jesus, can I just tell you right now, your problem is not a giving problem. Your problem's a gospel problem. It ain't about you throwing more money in a basket. It's about you resolving the gospel in your own heart, family. Because I'm telling you, man, somewhere on the line, here's what's happened. If you're a worshiper of Jesus and yet you're not all about helping to advance the mission of gospel with your resources, then the reality is this. Somewhere on the line, you've just totally forgotten that the core message of the gospel is this. God so loved the world that he gave. 
Which means, beloved, our God is a giving God and our God is a generous God. And if you're a worshiper of Jesus, you have reaped directly from the generosity of our living God. And one of the ways that we respond to God's generosity of giving us a savior that we don't deserve, mind you, is that we give generously towards the mission of even more people hearing about Jesus. It's just part of what it means to taste and see that the Lord is good and be changed by a family. The second reason I'm not apologetic when I ask each person in here to give generously towards the mission of the gospel is this. Again, read your Bible. You know what you're going to discover, man? Family, Jesus talked about money way more than I do, and he never apologized for it. If, you, if you're a part of the Emmaus family, you know how rarely we talk about this. Because our philosophy is simply this. If we preach the gospel enough, people will give. Because of the beauty of the gospel. You know what's fascinating? Read, read the Gospels, and here's the deal, family. True story. When you study the Gospels, here's what you're going to discover. Over 15% of all the things that Jesus said in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had to do with money. Do you know that? Say it again. 15% of everything Jesus says in the four Gospels had to do with money. You know what that means? Here's what that means, man. It means that if you would have attended a church where Jesus was the preaching pastor, every six weeks you would have heard a sermon about money. And y'all know we don't do that up in here. Here's what the breakdown is. The bottom line is, um, and this is what scripture teaches. The, the bottom line is this, family. The Bible teaches that we are all, get this, we're all managers of our resources. We're not owners of our resources. And this is why so many of us so often have a hard time with this, man. It's because we believe that we're the owners, right? We believe that we ultimately, the buck stops with us and we're the ones who decide and we're accountable to ourselves at the end of the month and we're accountable to ourselves at the end of the year and we're accountable to ourselves at the end of our lifetime and the buck stops with us but that's where we've gone off the rails, man because read the scriptures and the Bible teaches that we are all managers of our resources. We're not owners of our resources. Listen, I don't care how much you have in here, beloved. You're not the owner, you know what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches this. You came with nothing and you go return to the Lord with nothing. Ain't nobody showing up before the Lord right on that last day going, God, look at my stuff. Want to drive my car? You came with nothing. You return with nothing. You came with nothing. You ever seen a baby get born, you know, with Mr. T bling? No. You came with nothing. You were returned with nothing. And now you're in this season, this very brief season. We talked about it last week where James talked about it. Your life is a vapor. You're in this vaporous, very brief season of life right now where God, you know what he's doing? He's entrusted you with a certain amount of resources and you're accountable for him because he's the owner. You're just the manager. He's the owner. Meaning, just so we're clear, man, whatever resources you may have in your life right now have been given to you by God, not for you to own, but instead for you to manage. And I realize some of y'all hear me say that, and you want to push back, right? You're like, who is this guy telling me I don't own what I have? What do you mean I don't own what I have? You left wing crazy? Yeah, I own what I have. 
It's mine, man. It's mine. Bro, what do you mean God gave me my resources? I earned these resources, man. I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into these resources. I'm a red-blooded capitalist, right? I, I went to college. I studied hard. I put in the all-nighters. I applied for the job. I interviewed for the job. I impressed the hiring manager. And I go home with the paycheck at the end of the month. What do you mean God gave me these resources, man? What do you mean these resources don't belong to me? Well, let me ask you a question, Skippy. Who gave you the brain? Drop the mic, walk away, right? Who gave you the brain to process thoughts to be able to do any of those things? Why, did, you, did you make that brain? Did you make the brain? How about this? Who gave you the air right now, the air that you're breathing in and breathing out and breathing in and breathing out in order to sustain your life to see a tomorrow so that you could begin to make another paycheck? How about this? Who's causing your heart to beat? Are you causing your own heart to beat right now? Are you willingly causing your heart to beat, thinking to yourself, willing yourself for your heart to beat? Or instead, is your heart just beating? because apparently God's telling it to be. How about this? How about this question right now? Um, you know, in Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul says that it is God, our sovereign God, who has decided the times and the places where men and women should live. In other words, it was God who sovereignly decided for reasons of his own and purposes of his own that you should be born or live right now in the United States of America, which isn't a perfect country, but is probably most likely the best country when it comes to opportunities to excel and actually make money. Who allowed you to be born in this place? Did you do that? Did you pull that off? Family, all I'm saying to you is this. Look, like do, do some reverse engineering and what you're gonna find is this. God has been responsible for it all. It's his. It belongs to him. He's the owner. You're the steward. You're the steward. Whatever resources you may have right now have been entrusted to you by God for a season and how you use those resources will either be an act of worship or it'll be an act of defiance. And by the way, before you get worried and nervous and upset, can I just tell you this? This is not a salvation issue. This is not a salvation issue. I don't, want you to, I, don't, I don't want you to misinterpret anybody up in here going, man, he told me if I didn't tithe, I was going to hell. Nope, nope. Y'all guess what? Uh, the, the way to be redeemed and forgiven to have, to have eternal life is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. That's it. Amen? That ain't even about money. Y'all can amen that. Come on, man. Help preach out. That is the only way to justification before God, a relationship with Jesus. This is not a heaven and hell issue. It's an obedience issue, a stewardship issue. And I'm telling you, family, Jesus tells us an interesting story about what it means to manage resources and to be accountable in Luke chapter 16. Listen to what he says. Luke chapter 16, verse one. Jesus says this. He says, Jesus also said to the disciples, this is the story he tells. There was a rich man who had a manager. Did you see it? And charges were brought to him, the rich man, that this manager was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be a manager. Emmaus, listen, just so you know, this day is coming for every single one of us. Just like this brother right here in Luke chapter 16, we will all, listen, we will all give an account for how we managed what was God's. There's coming a day when we will give an account for what we managed with God's resources. See, beloved, the powerful point, listen, the powerful point that our boy James and 
our Savior Jesus and the Apostle Paul and really the entire Bible on repeat over and over again, the powerful point that they're all making is this. What we do with the resources that we have matters to God. It matters to God. All right, we're done with that. I'm sweating a lot, man. That's hard. It's hard to preach on this. And here's why it's hard to preach on it, because nobody amens, and then everybody looks at you, and you don't know what they're thinking, right? You don't know what they're thinking. You're like, what? No, thank you. Phew. Here's what some of you are thinking, though. The, the reality is, and probably maybe you're here today, and you're thinking to yourself, <laughs> this, is always, this is typically what happens, um, and then you don't really know it until somebody sends you an ugly email. So um, feel free to send emails, and I'll forward them on to Pastor Brian or Pastor Travis. It'll be wonderful. Um, but but here's, here's the thing about this. What some of you are thinking right now is this. Some of you are thinking about, some of, you, some of you have been thinking this since the intro. You've been thinking, well, I ain't never coming back here again. Gave it a shot. I ain't never coming back here again. How dare they preach the Bible? How dare they take this line by line and tell me what this thing says? Hey, preacher, here's what you're thinking. You wouldn't say this necessarily. Uh, maybe you would. I don't know. Maybe it would be interesting after the service. But, but maybe what you're thinking right now is, hey, preacher, hey, preacher, hey, listen, man, uh, here's the deal. Just so you know, I don't want to give, and I'm not going to give, and you can't make me give. Ugh. Okay. Can I, here's how I would honestly respond to that, by the way. Here's how I would honestly respond to that. After almost 20 years of full-time vocational ministry, you know what I've learned? Here's what I've learned. And I mean this sincerely. <laughs> if you don't want to honor God with your resources, then don't. Okay, I mean, I, I want to say to you, man, like, like, if, like if you don't want to do, if you don't want a piece of this, you don't want a part of it, if you don't want to honor God with your resources, then don't, because just so you're aware, can I just say this? I, I just want to make sure, make sure everybody in here is clear on this right here. For 2,000 years now, the mission of King Jesus has been advancing just fine without your money. You agree? I'm just saying, like for 2,000 years, it's been going just fine without you popping something into play. So just so you know, like, like, I just want you to understand, the God of all creation, the God of glory who like made everything with the word, the God of glory who tomorrow is going to cause the moon to pass in front of the sun, that same God, understand, he is not sitting on his throne right now thinking to himself, wow, I sure would like to get the gospel into Zambia, but I can't because Billy won't write a check. Ah! If you don't want to, if you don't want to honor God with your resources, then don't, man. That's on you. That ain't on me. That ain't on me. That's on you. Then don't. Don't. But understand this. God is not limited by you holding on to your paycheck, y'all. He is, he is not a beggar. He's a king. If you don't want to honor God with this stuff, then don't. And you know what God will do? Check this out. Here's what God will do. He does it all the time. You don't want to honor God with your resources, then don't. And God will do this, family. God will use Somebody else. And you'll miss out on the blessing that it is. Not a, not a drudgery. On the blessing that it is to be used by God 
as a faithful steward, and you'll miss out on the absolute blessing it is to trust God, the freedom it is to trust God with your resources as an unfettered act of worship. And you'll miss out on the blessing that it is and the freedom that it is to be able to give because God first gave. And see, that's the irony of this whole subject, beloved. That's the irony of this whole thing. The the incredible irony of this whole idea of giving and generosity is this. When we refuse to steward our resources, in the way that God has called us to steward our resources, it's not the Lord who misses out. It's his kids. Let's pray together, y'all. Let's pray together. These communion tables are set up as they are every Sunday. And if you love Jesus and follow Jesus and have trusted in Jesus, he's your God, he's your king, he's your savior. We invite you as God's family, saved by grace and your faith in Christ to go to these tables during this next song and take the bread representing the body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing the blood of Christ. And I hope and pray as your pastor that as you do that, as you take that bread and dip it in the cup and eat of it, I pray that at that moment you would remember God so loved the world that he gave. And I'm so grateful that when God looked at this lost world and when he knew that it would take as the blood of his only son Jesus to accomplish salvation for the people in this lost and dying world, I'm so, I'm so glad that God didn't respond to that by saying, no, that's too much. Can't give that. Father, I thank you for your generous heart and I thank you for what you're doing in this church and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you just do whatever you do and what only you can do. Would you allow generosity, the spirit of generosity to fall fresh upon this place in response to the good news of the gospel. And I pray all these things in the matchless name of King Jesus. Amen.